open. Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. This week is the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection when many of us watched in shock as fellow Americans stormed the Capitol, smashing the chambers and killing police officers. We know Trump summoned his supporters to Washington DC and told them to fight in his attempt to keep power despite losing the election. But most of us don't really know the inside story of what went on. What motivated seemingly average Americans to savagely attack our government? And what's happened with them since January 6th? And what might they do going forward? Here to help us answer these important questions and more is my guest, Bradley Onishi, a former white Christian nationalist who can tell us the inside story. What were these people thinking and what are they likely to do next? And how do we save our democracy? Now a scholar of religion, Onishi just published an important book about his experience as a white Christian nationalist and his insights into January 6th and beyond. The book is called Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He is now a scholar of religion with a degree from Oxford University and a PhD from the University of California at Santa Barbara, currently teaching at the University of San Francisco. Bradley Onishi, welcome to All Together Now. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, I, as I was preparing for this show with you, I was concerned that we only have one hour. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you wrote such a great book. You have such a fascinating well. story. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing your life experience with all of us. Um, so let's let's get right into it. You say you were a white Christian nationalist for 11 years. Could you explain for our listeners what are the core beliefs of a white Christian nationalist? Sure. Yeah, I converted at 14. And so um, I entered a world that I had never been in and stayed in that world for over a decade. I became a minister at age 20 and I entered seminary. And so my whole life was devoted to the church and to the movement. Uh, as I've studied uh, white Christian nationalism over the last years, uh, I've really identified some key tenets. And these follow on work by sociologists, Andrew Perry, Sam, uh, I'm sorry, Andrew Whitehead, Sam Perry, and many others. But white Christian nationalists believe that the country has gone off track. They have a nostalgic view of the United States. They believe that we were once a city on a hill, and yet somewhere along the line, uh, we deviated from our mission, uh, our special mission in history that God has given us as Americans. The goal is to go backward. The goal is to get back to that wonderful time when we were actually fulfilling God's will on earth. One of the ways I, I put this to students is that we were a city on a hill, but somewhere along the line, invaders and uh, uh, others who, who didn't deserve to be here got in. And so we had to build a wall. OK, well, they also have an apocalyptic view of the future. Uh, the world uh, and, and specifically the United States is on the brink of collapse. Mm -hmm. It's it's going to go off the rails if we don't do something to save it. This is really important to understand because it justifies extreme actions. If you believe you're in an emergency, 
you don't act in a routine way. You do things that you would not normally do because you are under direct threat. Well, that is how the white Christian nationalist thinks of the United States now. Mm-hmm. One last thing that I'll add is that they believe that the, the country was built for and by Christian people. And so there's a very uh, simple and unnuanced understanding of the, of the American founding as a Christian founding by Christian uh, 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 founders. There's also a sense that the country was really built for Christian people. And so uh, it's not that others can't be here, religious minorities, racial minorities, and so on. It's just they need to know their place. So when I was in the movement, I'm Japanese American. My dad is is Japanese American from Hawaii. It's not that I couldn't be there. It's just I needed to know that that wasn't going to be part of our of our community. I didn't need to be talking about those issues and that part of myself. I needed to leave that out, understand the the cultural cues, and just go go along with what the group needed. And so those are some of the main uh, tenets of white Christian nationalism. And uh, obviously, there's more to say, but I think that's a good outline. That is the best description I've ever heard of white Christian nationalism. I would just add to it the belief that men are superior to women. Yes. And men rule the home and rule the country and women need to know their place, just like people of color or immigrants need to know their place. So um, that is quite a lot to swallow. And you were 14 years old. It wasn't like you were brought up with these beliefs. You were kind of a regular teenager. Um, you were experimenting with, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like a regular American teenager. Yeah. How is it possible that this set of beliefs drew you and attracted you so much that you gave up sex and drugs to be part of this white Christian <laughs> nationalist community? You know, I, I was invited by a girlfriend and I really thought uh, going to Bible study on a Wednesday night at church was a good way to get out of the house. I thought mom would say yes, because, you know, if you're going to church, it'll get you on the straight and narrow. That's what I and she she did. And so I went and, um, you know, I have to say I did not meet people who judged me. I didn't meet people who who wanted me to get rid of my punk rock hair. And I met cool young leaders with tattoos and guitars and they taught me that uh, this was about a relationship with God, nothing else. The other thing that I really hope people understand is that um, these kinds of high demand religions, these fundamentalist religions, they provide shortcuts to all of our deepest questions Mm -hmm. about the human condition. So even at 14, I wondered, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What's the point of trying to be a good person? And when you enter these communities, they have very direct answers to all of those questions. And they have them in the context of a community that wants you to be part of it, wants you to come to a a summer camp and a a beach bonfire and a pizza night. And as a teenager, you're like, this is incredible. I get to be part of this group. I'm welcomed. I have a place where I fit in. And they're providing me all of the answers to the most difficult questions about being a human being. So I know there's many listeners and many viewers who would say, how can anyone join a community like this? It's, it's idiotic. And I understand your frustration, but it also provides uh, something that I think all of us yearn for. And it, it, it may not be the right answer, but it is uh, one way that we can kind of address the existential dimensions of, of our condition of being human. And so 
that is why I became so enmeshed in this movement and why I gave so much of myself to it. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so you're talking about your experience 11 years in this white Christian nationalist community. Um, and you say you don't recall ever hearing a prayer for peace or a call to end racism. How is that possible in a church that calls itself Christian? That's a good question. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I was a minister at the church uh, part time and full time for, for seven years. And we had a prayer meeting every Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. And I was often the youngest one there. People were, you know, I was 19 or 21 and they were 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And we would read these these prayer requests from the, the community, from the congregation. And every week there were requests. Please pray for our police. Please pray for our military. Please pray that the United States would, would win in all of its, uh, you know, conflicts around the world fighting for freedom. Um, you know, please pray uh, for for basically American nationalist victory. And it wasn't, you know, it was really something that, that over time stuck in my, my, my craw because it was, it was very strange to me that we would pray for a national interest over the universalism of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. To me, the kingdom of God was for everyone. Mm -hmm. It was a, a message for peace and liberty and love to everyone on earth. And yet our focus tended to be on Americanism. And I, I really think this is why Christian nationalism is so important to talk about, because it really is the marriage of the flag and the cross. It's the marriage of a Christian identity with an American identity. And it can really reduce a, a community's vision to uh, an Americanism over a, a, a sense or a desire or a need, as you say, for peace and love and harmony across the globe. And so um, I think that's an important dimension to keep in mind as we have these discussions. Absolutely. And and it's a piece of this that I've wondered about for many years, like the self-proclaimed Christian. And I should say I was brought up Catholic and I consider myself a Christian. Um, uh, but these the behavior and the beliefs of a lot of these extremist Christians are so at odds with what Christ actually taught. So Christ taught us love your neighbor as yourself. And yet the white Christian nationalists attack Jews, attack blacks, undermine women. How did you make sense of what you saw reading the Bible about what Christ's life was about and what he taught? How did you make sense of that and reconcile it with what your community of white Christian nationalists was saying and doing? Well, one of the things I've learned about the Bible and any sacred text uh, in any religious community is that you can read into that text anything you want to find. So if you have an answer in mind already, you can go find it and you can make the text say what you want it to say. And one of the reasons I eventually left the community is I realized that, that we had answers that we wanted going in to our study of Christ's teachings. We had a libertarian politics. We had a community that was, uh, for the large part, homogeneous racially. Um, we had a commitment to right-wing politics um, and capitalism, to private property. to and, and all of a sudden, I started thinking, you know, I wonder if the gospel that, that we espouse, is it more based in the timeless truths of the Christian tradition, or is it based in 
a modern American politics, particularly a modern American conservative politics. And as I did my studies and looked into the history and looked into the, the sociology, I realized that in the 60s and 70s, there had been a large scale takeover of the Republican Party by way of a marriage of political operatives and evangelical Christians. And by combining their politics, they were able not only to take over one party uh, in this country, but they were able to tell people sitting in the pews that all of their uh, teachings about morality and policy, these weren't just modern ideas, but these were the timeless teachings of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's a really powerful thing. If you're sitting in church and you think that uh, a, a certain position on abortion or a certain position on immigration or the death penalty or taxes is not just an idea from uh, a politician, but is a teaching that comes directly from the divine. It adds a dimension that is really hard to resist. And so uh, that was a big part of my experience. And it's honestly a big part of why I'm no longer part of, of the movement. Well, good for you. And there's um, <laughs> so many, I mean, millions, maybe tens of millions of people are still kind of trapped into the belief that their political views, which have been shaped in many ways by other people, are not just political ideas, as you say, but they're like the divine order from God. Um, how did you break out of that? You talk about you were reading other texts and then you begin to see what you're being taught in a different light. But um, why is it that you were reading other things that would cause you, like I'm sh the whole community you're talking about sounds like such a surround sound community yeah. that they, and they really try to have you not think about or see or read anything beyond what they're saying is truth. How did you break out of that bubble? So you were reading other stuff that raised these questions. You know, it's a saying in, in some of these uh, churches that if you read too much, your brain will lead your heart away from God. And so um, I, you know, I'm a professor, so I like to read. And that's kind of what I do on a day off. You'll find me with a stack of books. And uh, I, I started to read theology because I was interested in the Bible and I was interested in, in really thinking hard about, uh, you know, what it meant to, to have a, a worldview that was Christian. Well, you know, reading theology led to reading philosophy and reading history. And all of a sudden, I realized that the, the Christianity that I converted to was was really one iteration among many. Mm -hmm. And that there were other ways to be a person of faith. And in conjunction with that, I had experiences that really uh, kind of confirmed that I was uncomfortable with the way we approach some of the most fundamental issues mm -hmm. uh, facing us as human beings, as uh, as Americans. So let me give you an example. I was in the voting booth in 2004 trying to decide who to vote for, George W. Bush or John Kerry. And I had told my elders and my mentors, I'm going to vote for John Kerry because I think that more people will be helped, the vulnerable, the poor, the marginalized, um, by voting for, for John Kerry. And uh, they said, look, you can do that. And there may be more people who um, are out of poverty. There may be more people who are um, able to uh, find a job or uh, get health care. But you know, you're going to be voting for the murder of millions of babies because John Kerry is pro-choice. So you decide if you want to be a murderer, go ahead. And as I went to the voting booth, I, I was haunted because I thought I wanted to vote for John Kerry, but I just could not get myself to vote for murder. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. As I left that experience, it really stuck with me because I thought we have reduced one of the most important issues of our time to either or. There is no nuance. There is no discussion. There's no complexity. And it really started to be kind of a prism for me to understand how we had reduced almost every issue mm -hmm. to either or, us or them, uh, this or that. And that did not sit well with me. So as I got into my early 20s, I realized if I'm going to be a person of faith, that means facing complexity and gray area, not reducing everything to certainty. Faith is the opposite of certainty. And yet all we seem to have are absolute answers to the most difficult questions. That's not okay. And so that's really the, the, the ways intellectually and, and politically I found my way out. Wow, that's amazing. And um, I hope millions more follow your path. Um, and along those lines, what would you say as someone who was deeply immersed in this where, I mean, like you say, you weren't just a member of the church, you were a minister from age 20, you yeah. were teaching this stuff. Um, what would you say to someone who is a white Christian nationalist now that might help them see that some of what they're being told may not actually be truth with a capital T, but just kind of a religious doctrine that they're being indoctrinated with? Sure. I, I, you know, I think it's important to approach those interactions uh, with, with a couple of different uh, avenues in mind. So if, if they really do, if somebody really does want to have an honest and open dialogue, not, not an argument, not screaming on Twitter, but actually talk to each other. Mm -hmm. What I'll say is, hey, let's talk about abortion. This is one of the most important issues in these spaces. Uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. But, you know, in the 1960s, 90 percent of Texas Baptists supported abortion in some form. And that was not an isolated case. Most Protestants in this country in the 1960s mm -hmm. were for abortion in some form or another. I bring that up only to point out that what has been sold to you as a timeless moral issue of saving the unborn has been cooked up by political operatives in the 1970s who knew that if they could reduce this issue to murder, they could garner the votes of tens of millions of people that would never, ever, ever Vote, vote to hurt little babies. So it's worth reflecting on whether or not the principles, the Christian principles that you believe are stalwarts of your church's teachings are not more American political uh, inventions that have been used as weapons to get you to buy into a certain program. So I think that's one way that I, I, I talk to people on an intellectual level. On an emotional level, I ask about what is it that they're afraid of? What is it that you hope for? What is it you're angry about? Let's talk about that. I, I don't want to get you. I'm not here to criticize. I'm not here to, to tell you how stupid you are. I I'm really would like to know what drives you. What, what scares you about the world we live in in terms of raising your kids? What are you resentful about? What are you grieving? And if, if I ask them that question, then maybe they'll ask me that question too. And all of a sudden we're human beings and they no longer see me as a crazy liberal or a godless heathen or just a, uh, you know, a, a wacky professor, but uh, just a human being who's also scared, who's also hopeful, who's also anxious. And we might have a discussion along those lines that, uh, that actually produces some results more than just calling each other names on Twitter 
um, and uh, and yelling across uh, uh, you know surround sound silos. Right, exactly. That sounds great. So, are you out now? Do you have many of these conversations with current white Christian nationalists? You know, I used to have a lot more um, because uh, when I first left the church, there were many, many, many people who were very worried about me. Um, you know, I, I left a very big church, thousands of people. I was a minister there. Uh, when I got married at age 20, there were a thousand people at the ceremony. Um, so we're talking a lot of folks. And over the years, um, you know, I became uh, somebody who was quite frustrated with a lot of those discussions. And here's why. Mm -hmm. I, I gave everything I had to the church. And then when I left it, I gave everything I had to learning everything I could about Christianity and the United States and its history. So I didn't go out and start a business. I didn't go out and, and get, uh, you know, make, make a lot of money like many of the folks in the church did. I was, I had given my life to ministry and then I gave my life to learning all I could about these issues. And so when, when folks would try to tell me that I had never been a person of faith or that I, had, I didn't really know what I was talking about, it was very hard to kind of contain my frustration and say, look, I, I, this is this is what I've given every every ounce of my my heart and mind to. Um, and this is how I see it. What I do now quite often is help others have these conversations because I have a I have a show called Straight White American Jesus. We have quite a large audience and we do everything we can to give people the tools to talk to their loved ones, their friends, their neighbors, their teachers, their uh, you know, people in their communities about uh, uh, about the, the the kind of intellectual and emotional dimensions of, of white Christian nationalism and how we might, as you said earlier, save our democracy. Right, exactly. And I want to go into kind of the history and the roots of this white Christian nationalism that you've mentioned a couple of times. Before I do that, I just want to say, as I was reading your book, I saw such striking parallels between what's happening with the white Christian nationalists in our own country and the Taliban in Afghanistan. And um, it seems to me that uh, the Taliban, they're extremist Muslims. They cherry pick from the Quran, their holy book of the Muslims. They teach a distorted interpretation of that holy book and it leads them to elevate uh, men above women in the family and throughout society. Um, now that you're a scholar of religion with this experience behind you as being a white Christian nationalist, have you seen these similarities between white Christian nationalism and the Taliban? So I think that, I think, that, you know, sometimes the, the comparisons can be, um, a little bit unhelpful. They can they can little be little bit be apples and oranges. But what what I will say is that I think both of these groups are fundamentalist religions. And here are some hallmarks of fundamentalist religions that, that scholars of religions point to. They reduce the world to uh, an inside and outside group. You're either with us or you're against us. Uh, there's no casual participation. You know, you mentioned being Catholic. My my wife, uh, my she grew up Catholic, and uh, went to church on Sundays and then, you know, didn't really think about it. And then she went back to church on Sunday and that's, that's kind of how it went. She was a Catholic, but it, it, it was not an everyday, every moment uh, kind of a thing for her. Mm -hmm. Well, fundamentalist religions demand that every moment and every day be a full investment. You're either with us or you are against us. They also understand that they are 
participating in a cosmic war, that it's not just, uh, you know, disagreement between neighbors about what's the best school curriculum. It's a cosmic war between good and evil, right? Um, Fundamentalist religions, as you've mentioned, are often patriarchal. They are often ways for men to uh, legitimate their earthly authority and their earthly power by way of a kind of divine uh, granting and a divine mission. And so I think what I would say is that fundamentalist religions have these hallmarks and white Christian nationalists in this country uh, definitely display them. However, there is one caveat, and that is that in the United States, when you are a white Christian, you are the default person. You're the standard. Uh, There's an automatic sense of trust in the media. There's an automatic sense of privilege because you're you're understood to be normal. There's nothing right. Historically, there has been nothing threatening about the white Christian. Um, You know, that's different than how Muslims have been treated in the country after 9-11 or how Buddhists were treated during Japanese incarceration or uh, during Chinese exclusion. I could give more and more examples. The difference is, is that in this case, a white Christian is is understood for the most part uh, to be the real American. And I think that prevents us often from detecting um, the, uh, uh, the, the dangers that are posed to uh, democracy by these groups. All right. Very good. Well, talking about how these groups threaten our democracy, let's talk about the history, which I learned so much from your wonderful book, on the background that led to the January 6th insurrection. And you say, you know, it wasn't just Trump from 2015 on. This is going back 50 years to white evangelical preparation for war against our democracy. Um, So you mention in the book that you think that even though Barry Goldwater lost the 1964 presidential race in a landslide, he got crushed that his campaign marked the birth of the white Christian nationalist counter-revolution. How did that happen? And what did he do when he ran that is still being used today for these candidates to win? Yeah, fantastic question. It, uh, in, in 1964, Barry Goldwater was a surprise presidential candidate. It was supposed to be Nelson Rockefeller, the country club Republican, the heir to the Rockefeller uh, fortune and so on. Um, Barry Goldwater was a cowboy senator from the American Southwest. He was brusque, he was hyper-masculine, and he didn't care so much about policy as he did saying that we might need to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam, and he wasn't going to support any Civil Rights Act forcing people by law to integrate and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that might sound familiar if anybody's followed our politics over the last uh, five or six years. Um And what he did when he accepted the nomination in San Francisco is he uttered some words that are now very famous in American political history. He says, extremism is a virtue and moderation is not. Uh, And if if we put this in context, the 1960s and even in 1964, things were really starting to move when it came to the civil rights movement, when it came to calls for immigration reform, when it came to women's liberation. Uh, The Feminine Mystique was published in 1963. Um, the Loving Act was 1967, or the Loving Decision, I should say, was 1967. Um, I could go on and on and on. Stonewall happens Which a couple was, years of course, later. Which was, the Supreme Court decision to allow interracial marriage is legal. Very, yes. And, and so 
Uh, Barry Goldwater, to me, represents a group of white Americans, white landowning, patriarchal Christian Americans who are saying, you know, extremism is the only way we're going to keep our country because women, independent women, people of color, immigrants, queer folks, mixed race folks, they want equal representation. They want equal rights. They want to be part of the governance and uh, the power structures of our economics and our politics and our culture. So you know what? Extremism is the only way. It's the only way you're going to keep your country. And yes, as you, as you say, he got absolutely destroyed by Lyndon Johnson. But the foot soldiers of his campaign never forgot that lesson. Extremism is a virtue. And they went on to build all of the institutions that now control the uh, American conservative movement in the United States, the Heritage Foundation, the Council for National Policy, the Federalist Society. And what they did along the way in the 1970s was they built a coalition with white evangelicals and white Catholics, the moral majority. And by doing so, they were able to give the political policies and the political positions a Christian story. And that became an overwhelmingly powerful force. And it eventually took over the, the Republican Party. My point here is that the mantra, extremism, extremism is a virtue, it never went out of vogue. The sense that unless you're an extremist, you won't be able to take back your country from all those interlopers, it was never forgotten. And so when we arrive at Donald Trump and his birtherism, when we arrive at QAnon, when we arrive at the, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers, when we arrive at the Proud Boys, when we arrive at January 6th, to me, there is a way that those uh, uh, actors and events are all part of this history that we can trace all the way back to the 1960s and the counter-revolution launched by uh, white Christian nationalists at that time. That is a really important history, and you can see the through line between Barry Goldwater and Donald Trump now. Um, and by the way, I actually, when I read and heard now your description of what is a white Christian national, I actually resonate with some of what they say. I mean, this idea of America as a city on a hill, as a beacon of light to all mankind, I actually believe that. Uh, it's just I have a very different interpretation. To me, what it is, is that we're a city on the hill, a beacon of light for freedom of all people and equality of all people. And it's almost, um, I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's almost laughable to think that that's white Christian is all there is there, given that, first of all, the white Christians who arrived landed on Native American territory. So right off the bat, you got your Native American land. And also the blacks that were brought um, into this area or moved into this area. Initially in colonial times, there was not slavery or it wasn't widespread. Some were brought uh, as slaves to the Virginia plantation and so forth. But it, it actually, a lot of the blacks that were here were free men. Uh, and free women, and gradually slavery kind of took hold and then became the way the way it was. But the country would not have been built uh, without without all of the men and women who were here helping to build it. So it I agree with the heartfelt principle. It's just the 
very narrow slant that it's just white Christian men is where it kind of went off base. But maybe I can find some common ground with white Christian nationalists with that perspective. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I, I, I hear you. And I think that the city on a hill metaphor has been used, you know, it, 1630 is when we get it. It's, it's John Winthrop and the, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he's quoting Matthew chapter five. Mm -hmm. uh, it's picked up by John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan and Newt mm -hmm. Gingrich and, and folks like this. As you say, the, the imagination is for a certain, uh, a certain America that felt safe, that felt uh, like it was um, somehow uh, on, on the track to carry out a divine mission from God. One of the things that I, I, I think is at play here is nostalgia. And nostalgia is, is different from history. You know, history is trying to determine what happened in, in, in best we can through data and evidence and documents and, and to build a factual timeline in some way. Nostalgia is a looking to the past in a way that, that often creates the past that never existed. It, you know, nostalgia creates a, a history that, that is mythical. And it says, oh, if we could only go back to that, mm -hmm. if we could only get back to the good old days, the golden age, the Pax Americana. And I think the way that, that you know, white Christian nationalists think about the city on a hill is a nostalgic mythological understanding mm -hmm. of what this country is and what it has been. And as you say, um, it, it, it refuses. And, and you can see here the logic that if you approach the person with this nostalgic view of the United States as a city on a hill and you say, what about the attempted genocide of Native Americans? What about the very long history of, of slavery? What about Jim Crow? What about the Ku Klux Klan? What about mm -hmm. uh, Chinese Exclusion Act? What about Tulsa, 1919? What about uh, you know Japanese incarceration in World War II? You can see how all of those things would threaten that nostalgic, unscathed Garden of Eden kind of vision, and and the the, the sort of ears, uh, uh, fingers in the ears, don't say that to me, get out of here. Reaction <laughs> is really an attempt to protect that yeah. nostalgic ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, most white Christian nationalists, according to the data. They think America was best in the 1950s. And if we think about the history we just talked about, that is before so many advances in women's liberation, so many advances in the civil rights movement, so mm -hmm. many advances in immigration reform, so many advances that have given so many Americans more freedom and equality. So when they want to go back to the 1950s, to me, it really gives me an idea of, of what they think of as the ideal state of the United States. And very frankly, it's not one that I want to go back to. Well, and obviously it's a very narrow view of the 1950s because yeah. if you want to go back there, just ask them, well, do you want to go back? There was 90% taxes on income over yep. a certain level. Yep. Yep. Like, yep. okay, you want that? You know, and and all the problems of Jim Crow and of course the suppression of women. Um, yep. Uh, so, and speaking of women, I this is an area I really don't understand, and I'm hoping you can explain. You don't talk much about this, if at all, in your book. But why in heaven's name would any woman want to subscribe to this whole idea? When you say white Christian nationalists, it's assuming it's the men. And they're talking about the men run the family. They're dominating the women and the children. The men run the church. The men run the country. And that's how it should be. And anyone in our way, we're going to mow them down. 
because they're not just difference of opinion, they're evil and we must crush them. Um, why would any woman subscribe to something where they're inherently in a subordinate role and will never be able to break out? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it's very confounding. I'm going to go back to what I found in the church I, when I was 14. Uh, when I was 14, when I was 14, 14, what I found in the church were answers. Um, they were answers to my deepest questions about being a human being, about what happens after you die. Uh, who should I be? Uh, what's my identity? What role should I play? And I think when we ask questions about gender, it's often, and, and race, it's often odd to think that people would join a group that actively suppresses them. But I think that one thing that happens in these groups is that you are provided a very certain and definite role and path for your life. You're given a part to play. You don't have to wonder who you are. You don't have to wonder uh, how to build yourself from scratch. You don't have to create an identity every day uh, anew all the time. And so the certainty and the, uh, the structure are often very appealing. And so mm -hmm. people are willing to forfeit some of their, their freedom and some of their autonomy so that they have the guarantee of having an, a, a role, having a place, having a, a, a community, having a story that they can live out. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that's, that's worth it. I don't think that that's uh, necessarily uh, uh, a reason to stay. But it is, for me, a way to explain why someone would join a group that actively suppresses a, a key part of, of who they are. Right. And what was your experience, Brad, when you kind of you walk away from this, this certainty, this known role, this 11 years of your life, you're a leader in that community as a pastor and teacher. Um, and now you have all these doubts and questions. You're like, hey, you know, I'm seeing now this in a whole different light. And this is really more political than divine word of God. This is like what some political people in the 60s thought we should think. <laughs> and um, as you raise these questions and then pull away from the church, you lose that certainty. You lose that role you've had of prominence in that known and safe community. Um, what was your experience? Was it were you like, oh, my God, now I'm scared. Like, who am I and what am I supposed to do with my life? Or was it exhilaration? Like, thank God I'm free and I'm, you know, broken out of those that mental prison. And now I am free to see reality as it really is. Or what was your real experience as you live that shift? It was both. It was absolutely both. And so um, I think one of the reasons that it is so hard to leave these communities is because when you do, you are void of, of any understanding of who you are in the world and any connection in the world. So I didn't have any friends outside of the church. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any uh, understanding of my professional life outside of the church. I, you know, from the age of time I graduated high school till the time I was in my early 20s, my only job was at the church. I, I didn't have a resume that I could use to go, uh, you know, start building another career right away. Everything I had learned about politics came from the church. I, I thought the big bad world out there was scary and demonic. And I, I was just going to meet all kinds of evil forces when I went out into the, the big bad liberal world. So when you leave these communities, it's an excruciating process of rebuilding. And right. it's confusing. It's often uh, just terrifying. 
However, it's also exhilarating because you you now have a chance to explore every avenue of yourself and your world in ways that you just were told you're not allowed to do or supposed to do before. And so um, I found myself, you know, I, I left the church and I went over to England to get a master's degree. And I was so like happy because I could read any book I wanted and no one was going to police me about it. I could go to various churches and various groups and see what they believed. And you know what I found? The world was not nearly as evil and demonic as I had been told, that there were good people trying to uh, address the most uh, pressing issues of our time, to work together, to flat out and discuss their differences. I actually found human beings. And that was amazing because I was told I was going to find evil demonic beings who wanted to destroy me and everything in their path. And so uh, I relish those years, even as much as they were difficult, and I, I really don't want to go back to them. <laughs> yeah, that is fabulous. Um, so, you know, you talked about the 1960s, and in many ways, this the rise of the white Christian nationalism was really kind of reaction and backlash against the progress made on civil rights for blacks and women's rights. Um and people felt threatened that the order they knew was being undone. Um, but then instead of being kind of straightforward about, oh, we're worried about blacks and women rising up, um, it gets cloaked, I think, in a very um, manipulative kind of way that Jerry Falwell and his friends even though they originally were very overt about their racism, they start cloaking their racism and say, well, no, we're really, it's not that we're anti-Black or anti-women, it's that we're for family values and religious mm -hmm. liberty. And they start the framing in a way that if you attack them, you're attacking not racism, you're attacking family values. So could you talk a little bit about what you saw happening with that? Yeah, you, you really put it uh, very well there. So um, 1954 is the Brown v. Board uh, of Education Supreme Court decision. And, and it's really the decision to integrate all, all schools in the United States, particularly in the South, the Jim Crow South. Well, a lot of white families and white Christians didn't want to do that. And so what happened was the creation of uh, Christian day schools connected to churches, basically private Christian schools. And these were in essence, segregation academies. These were, these were schools that only accepted white students. You get to the sixties and you have entire school districts that, that have no more white kids left in Mississippi or in Virginia. And so there's a, a kind of beginning of a, of a crackdown. Hey, the IRS says, if you're going to have a segregation academy, you're no longer going to be tax exempt as a church. Sorry, we're going to we're, we're going to you're going to forfeit that status. Well, as you just said, Jerry Falwell and uh, many of the major players in the religious right. They didn't admit, well, yeah, we just want to say segregated. What they realized is, is it would be much more effective to say we are pro family, pro God, pro American. And if you are criticizing us, it's because you are uh, attacking the nuclear family. You're attacking traditional family values. You're one of these uh, hippies and these revolutionaries who wants to change the structure of the American family. You know what we're doing? We just want to choose where our kids go to school. We just want to have a say as parents in the curriculum that they learn. Is that such a crime? You know, 
if if you say that we're bigots, we just say that we're just good old fashioned Christians who love our country. And the reason I think this is important is this is the rhetoric we hear now. When right. you hear about critical race theory and school board meetings and curriculum and taking books off of library shelves, this is not new. This is a 60 year old playbook because it's so much harder to attack somebody who says they are acting on the, the interests of their family and children than it is someone who says, I just don't like that racial group. I don't like black people. I don't like Asian people. I don't like brown people. And I don't like women or gay people. So, you know, and, and if someone says that, it's pretty easy to criticize. If somebody says, I'm just looking out for my kids. Well, you have to do a lot of work to kind of pierce that, that shield. And Jerry Falwell knew that. And the playbook's been in place for six decades now. Right. And, and still working for so many people. Yes. And I also find it interesting from a group of uh, Christians who will cloak themselves in family values and then they wildly support someone like Donald Trump, who is like three times divorced, clearly a womanizer, abuser, liar, uh, a cheat of his business people, his partners and his workers. He's just like in many ways, in terms of character, really a despicable character. So I didn't understand until I read your book, how could any Christian support a guy with behavior and morals that were so despicable? Can you explain that for our audience? Sure. Uh, it, it is it is confusing, but I think there are ways that we can understand it. Um, so if we if we talk about the 1960s and this counter-revolution, the goal is really for the white Christian landowning person to keep their place at the top of the American social order, that we are the ones in their minds who founded the country. We have the right to determine our politics and our economics and our, and our society, okay? If you're going to take that away from us, then, uh, you know, we're going to do our best in the 70s and the 80s and 90s to, to vote and elect people that will be on our side. And, and we'll do our best, right? But, you know, by the time we get to 2008, Barack Obama's in place. And Barack Obama is a mixed race person. Okay, we've talked about mixed race people. He's a black person with a black wife and black children. Well, we've talked about that, too. Uh, his father's an immigrant. Well, oh, my gosh, we're on strike three now. Okay, his middle name is Hussein and his dad was or was Muslim. All right. This is really getting quite, uh, you know, to be uh, like it's made out of a lab to just really uh, in enrage the white Christian nationalists. And while he's president, gay marriage is legal. Well, so you know what? When we get to 2016, we do not want somebody who shares our identity. We're not interested in, in somebody who has the virtues of a Christian man. What we're interested in is a man who is willing to bully and brutalize all of our enemies. What we need is the social order to be put back in place. And if that means violence, if that means tactics that are undemocratic, if that means breaking American norms, that's fine. Because the goal for us is not a pastor in chief or somebody who resembles the way we do things. And in fact, and this is really important, and I talk about it at length in the book, if we elect a Christian man, he may be too Christian and not brutal, not barbaric. If we mm -hmm. elect Mike Pence or Mike Huckabee, 
they may be too nice and they may read the Bible too much. They may like pray too much, just like Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, if Barack Obama was made in a lab, I think Jimmy Carter was made in a lab. He was a Southern Baptist peanut farmer who married his high school sweetheart, was a military officer, and uh, you know did everything he could to be a good Christian Sunday school teacher. And yet, if we do our history, the religious right did everything they could to elect whom? Ronald Reagan, the divorced Hollywood actor who was pro-abortion at one point, uh, who did not have a great relationship with his kids, i.e. family values, whose wife Nancy uh, had an astrologist follow her around the White House and give her ideas, the least evangelical guy you could think of in some ways. And yet, what did he promise them? He promised them power. He promised them control. Well, Donald Trump promised that and more. And in addition, he promised to brutalize those who deserved it. You know, I have a friend who says that this group is happiest when they are full of rage. And the rage after the Obama years was real. And so we don't want a pastor. We don't want a Christian. We want a man who will do all the things we need done as barbarically as, as is needed. And that man was Donald Trump. And what you just described about the mindset of we'll break any norms, we'll be violent, whatever it takes to crush our enemies and to put things into their view of divine right order led directly to January 6th and the assault on our Capitol and you talk uh, in the book about the very real possibility that if you hadn't woken up in the way you did, you would likely have been in with that group. And in fact, that several of your neighbors and fellow members from your church were actually in that insurrection on January 6th. And I found it interesting, you said that what scared you most about the whole situation was the banality and ordinariness of the thoughts and actions of people that you knew from your former hometown who made that insurrection happen. What did you mean by that? Yeah, you know, there's a, uh, a famous book by the, the philosopher Hannah Arendt, you know, the, the banality of evil. And it's, it's really in reference to the Holocaust. And one of the things that uh, she talks about in that book is you know, it, it's easy for us to try to identify the just the radically uh, sinister dimensions of, of human action and to decry those and say those are the, those are really the, the things we have to look out for. And those are the reasons that something like the Holocaust happens. But in reality, it, it's really the everyday actions and thoughts of run of the mill people, people mm -hmm. who are willing to go along with what they hear from leaders, people who are willing to obey orders people who buy into the ideas that they hear from pulpits and from uh, radio programs and then act on them. And to me, you know, as I thought about the people who I knew, uh, or at least uh, that were from my hometown that were there, uh, these were not supervillains. These were not the people that I thought of as uh, waking up in the morning thinking, how can I hurt the most people? These were people that wake up in the morning thinking, how can I be a good suburban mom? Mm -hmm. What does my kid need for lunch today? What time is the PTA meeting? Uh, what time is the soccer game on Saturday? And yet there were also people that had somehow been radicalized into a way of thinking that they thought also going to Washington, D.C. and participating in a rally on January 6th is the best way for me to help my country. 
And I think that's really scary. When we focus on the mundane, we realize Mm -hmm. that is often where uh, human tragedy happens. Right. And someone like Donald Trump can't do anything unless people back him. And that is, I think, the most scary thing is about how these normal suburban people got behind him and were willing to go destroy the Capitol and kill police officers because they thought that was the greater good for the country. It was like, really? That's <laughs> like, how far off course can you get? And are you not like waking up to what you're actually doing here? Uh, and it so is like the story of the average Germans who enabled Hitler. I mean, Hitler couldn't have done anything alone either. But, you know, people believe him and do these outrageous things and murder six million Jews. And here we are. Uh, It's like so, you know, it's deeply disturbing that this is now happening in our country. I have always felt the United States would never be beaten by any external force as long as we had internal harmony. But with this level of internal division, we are in deep trouble. And um you know, I I want to go to kind of since January 6th, you wrote a the best piece I've seen on what you imagined, you know, what you wish had been the reaction after January 6th. Um, can you say what response you think would have kind of put this uh, monstrosity back into a box? Well, I you know, I think there was a chance. And we saw it in the very, the very first hours after the insurrection that not only did democratic leaders and faith leaders uh, on the left, uh, progressive Christians and, and Jews and Muslims and others decry uh, the actions uh, at January 6th. But you saw Mitch McConnell, you saw Kevin McCarthy, you saw Republican leaders, Lindsey Graham, condemn it. And then they realized that the mob was still on the side of Trump. And they recanted and they backed away. But if we had stayed on that track, if we had uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy, if we had uh, the the shock jocks of of, of right-wing radio, if we had the prominent evangelical pastors who have followers in the millions condemning January 6th, calling it out as a moment in our history that is shameful and that we have to confront and never repeat, we might have had a situation where all of the myths and all of the stories and all of the valorization of that day that is now happening on the American right would have never taken root. And we might have confronted uh, the tragedy uh, of that day in a way that might have pulled the, the, the cover from Trumpism, pulled the cover from the MAGA movement. And we could have maybe entered into a new era of American political life. That did not happen. And so in the two years since then, We have people who have flags with Ashley Babbitt's face on it who celebrate her as the first martyr in the new revolution. Mm -hmm. We have a a former president who continues to propagate the big lie and claim that we should suspend the Constitution to put him back in office. We have uh, many millions of Americans and many American politicians who continue to support that, that former president. We have not dealt with it, even if some people have been held accountable. Uh, it it is not something that has, as you say, been put back into uh, its its box, and so I do fear that uh, we continue to face a, a a really grave threat to our republic. I agree with that, and you know, without having had that unified or or widespread pushback, now 
this white Christian nationalism has metastasized and yeah. grown. It's now there's millions more people believe the big lie than did even on January 6th. And, you know, you mentioned that some people argue that the North defeated the South on the battlefield, but the Confederacy actually won the Civil War because of the myths that they kept alive. And do you think the same could be said for the mega nation and the big lie? Very much. So after the Civil War, many people will be familiar with the lost cause ideology that this, the South uh, was attacked by a, 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 North, a North interested in land and money, um, that the South uh, was the side of not only uh, the, the rightful uh, cause, but the Christian cause, and that indeed the South would rise again. And, you know, that lost cause uh, myth really is what gave birth to uh, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, that's what gave birth to uh, Jim Crow. It's what gave birth to so many things. There's a great book by Heather Cox Richardson about this. Um, the MAGA myths from those are taken as facts now. Those are taken by many people as just, and that's how myths work. They become so common, so widespread, and in many communities, they go And so one of the results of, of us not uh, having full-scale accountability for doing work is those myths become reality, and they will continue to affect our civic life going forward. Right. And, and speaking of going forward, I want to talk a little bit about what you think is going to happen next. And I think the title of your book kind of gives it away, which is Preparing for War is the title. Um, so you're starting to fade out a little bit here, but I'm wondering uh, just and we're about to sign off. But um, what do you think is going to happen next? Do you think this is all going to be like more tax on state capitals, more tax on the U.S. capital, or what do you see coming down the pike? You know, I, I think there's reasons to be hopeful. We have so many Americans who in 2022 voted for democracy. They voted uh, to, to save reproductive rights in, in, in any way possible. Uh, there are reasons that the country continues um, to do its best to, to march uh, towards towards uh, justice. And yet, uh, we also have these little fires all, all over the place. We have attacks on power grids to stop Drag Queen Story Hour. We have people showing up with AR-15s to, uh, to disrupt gay people having brunch. Um, we see school board meetings becoming violent, librarians quitting because they're becoming attacked uh, so often and, and so uh, extremely. So, we could focus on a North versus South civil war scenario, or we could sort of look up and say from North Carolina to Maine, to Kansas, to Oregon, there are little fires brewing and they are the signs of the kinds of unrest that is stemming from uh, everything we've been talking about today. So I think those things will continue. And I think they will continue until there's a way uh, to, uh, as you mentioned earlier, kind of somehow uh, evaporate all of the energy from uh, Christian Trumpism and the MAGA movement. So, you know, how do we do that? I mean, you're, you know, more about this probably than almost anybody in the country having been in it and now out of it. 
and studying it and you're so smart and so honest intellectually and morally, um, what do we do? What, what can our listeners do? Uh, and what do we do to salvage our democracy given this cancer that's growing in our country? So I think, I think one thing that I would say is that we have to be focused on um, every ligament, tendon, organ, and system of the American body. Um, I can tell you as somebody who was part of this movement that uh, they are not focused simply on who's in the White House. That's a big deal. They're not simply focused on Supreme Court justices. That's a big deal. They're very focused on who is the county supervisor, who is the sheriff, who is the mayor, who's on the school board, uh, who is controlling the, the, the county uh, budgets, every ligament, every organ, every system, every muscle needs to be paid attention to. And what I always encourage people to do is say, it's 2023. What is one thing you're going to get involved in this year? You can't do everything. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, you know, be everywhere. What's one thing you can do? What's one place? Is that, is that a school board? Is that a, uh, a set of uh, local politics? Is that supporting reproductive uh, rights and women's centers and health centers in your community? Where is it? And find solidarity with others doing that and go for it. And then help people who are, who are, who are doing other things and contributing to other causes. We can only do this if we realize that the, the nation is local. And if we attend to every aspect of our body, there's a chance that we can, we can nurse it back to health. But if we're only focused on the head, if we're only focused on the face, if we're only focused on an election every four years, and then we go back to our hobbies and our, and our brunch, um, then I can tell you from experience that the other side does not care if the 2022 midterms were a little bit disappointing or if they didn't win enough seats as they thought. They are going to plan B and plan C and plan D. And so that's my encouragement. New year, one new thing. And um, never discount uh, that thing as too small or too local. That The local is the national. And uh, if we take that uh, going forward, I think there's a chance um, to protect democracy uh, in mm-hmm. the years to come. Good advice. And if you were to meet with President Biden, what do you think is the most important thing you would advise him to do right now? Oh, goodness. That's a big question. Um, (laughs) Well, we're entering into a new era because uh, there's no longer democratic control of the House. Um, And uh, if I'm honest, um, I would I would tell him that uh, despite his his longstanding rhetoric about bipartisanship, that the fight over the speakership uh, in, in the House of Representatives is a perfect example of how the extremist wing of the Republican Party is doing everything it can to control that party, that Matt Gates and his comrades are really the ones trying to pull the strings. And so if you expect, like your predecessor Barack Obama did in some way, that you'll receive good faith negotiation from that group, you are wrong. And so you're going to have to do everything you can by way of the Senate and by way of, of other avenues to help make American lives better when it comes to health, when it comes to drug prices, when it comes to getting judges on the bench and through the Senate, um, when it comes to getting a great list of candidates uh, up and down ballots for Democrats in 2024 and so on and so forth. So 
that would be my uh, my uh, discussion with him, uh, even mm-hmm. though I'm sure he's heard it before and has many people telling him the same thing. Well, that's good advice. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. And uh, listeners, the book is Preparing for War, as the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, a central reading for anyone concerned about our democracy. Bradley Onishi, thank you so much for being on All Together Now and for your important work. Thanks for having me.